Good morning. Good to see you this morning. My name is Paul Funches. I'm the teaching pastor here at Trinity Church, uh, the lead elder in that way. And I am glad that you're here. Hopefully, I see several faces I don't recognize, so if, if you don't know me or if I don't know who you are, please stop and see me before you leave today. I would love to meet you and have a name to go along with your face uh, and get to know who you are. Uh, we are here to answer any questions that you have and want to welcome you here this morning. Members of Trinity Church, it's good to see you as well. And regular visitors, that we have several of you that are attending or have attended or have been around and attended a little bit, and, uh, and you're a familiar face for that reason. We're glad that you're here. If you have any questions about membership, we're going to talk a little bit about that today in our, in our sermon, but if you have any questions about membership or how to join with us here in a meaningful way, uh, please let me know. We'd love to talk to you about that and have that conversation. As uh, Jeremy said, we changed up, we kind of we kind of um, did a little bit of a change in midweek here on our sermon uh, text. We're in Acts chapter 18, verse 24 through the end, and then Acts chapter 19, 1 through 10. We're going to read through verse 10 of chapter 19, and I'll, I'll tell you why here in just a minute. But if you'd stand with me, uh, out of respect for God's word, out of honoring God's word, we're going to read Acts chapter uh, 18, verse 24, all the way through 19, verse 10. What a privilege it is to be able to read God's word. I hope that's not a privilege you take for granted. Something that many, many, I would say the majority of the rest of the world doesn't have that opportunity this morning. And you do. And you probably... Don't even think, give it a second thought. But we can stand up together freely and read God's word together. And that is, what a grace, what a gift that is to us. Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 24. Follow along as I read, please. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks be to God indeed. None of us like to be corrected, do we? None of us like to be corrected. There are a lot of reasons for that. If you have to be corrected, that implies that you are wrong. And none of us like to be wrong. None of us like to be seen as ignorant, right? 
We don't want to be ignorant of anything, and if we're corrected, that means we must have been ignorant of something, or wrong in something, uneducated, or unrefined in some area. So none of us like correction. All of us, though, are corrected on a daily basis. If we stop and think about it, there are many times throughout the day that we experience correction. Yesterday I was out with my, a couple of my kids. We were busy working all day and I had to run some errands and I was over uh, driving on Mission Avenue in Liberty Lake. And uh, as I was driving, all of a sudden I saw a police officer in their car in the adjacent street. And what do you do as soon as you see the police officer? You look at the speedometer, right? As soon as you see the police officer, it's like, it's like condition. Boom. How fast am I going? And in fact, I was going 10 miles over the speed limit and I, Oh, I got to slow down. That was a form of correction, right? Thankfully he didn't see the need to further correct me. He just let me go. I was glad for that, but we're all corrected in some way, shape or form on a daily basis. Most of us, most of us don't enjoy correction. In fact, let me ask you this way. When was the last time, we all experienced creation on those smaller levels, but when was the last time someone actually had to sit down with you or have a conversation with you where they corrected you in your thinking or behavior or your desires and they, they had a correcting conversation with you? Uh, if, you're a, if you're a kid here today, you're like, that happens to me all the time. Hopefully it does. They need to be corrected, right? Because they're, they're kids. They need parents. Parents need to tell them which way to go and how to live, right? That's what parents are for. One of the many things parents are for. When's the last time someone sat down with you and had that correcting kind of conversation? And let me ask this further question. How did that go? How did that go when they corrected you? Normally, I'll just throw this out there. Normally it doesn't go super well. When someone sits down with you or corrects you or confronts you, it doesn't usually go very well. Usually it, it, it results in defensiveness, right? No, that's, not, that's not, you don't see it right. You don't know. You don't understand my motives. That wasn't my intention at all, right? So we, we get defensive. We don't like to be corrected. It normally doesn't go well for that reason. And not only don't we like to be corrected, we also don't like to be the one giving correction usually. We don't readily give correction to people. It's not easy. We know it's going to be a hard conversation. We know it's not going to be fun. And so we hesitate to give the correction that is often needed. By the way, just a side note, be, beware of someone who is too eager to give correction. Beware of somebody who's all too ready to give the correction. They just go around giving correction to everybody, trying to make sure everybody has everything right, right? What are they saying about themselves? I've got it all together. I've got it all figured out. Let me just set everything else right. Someone who's too eager to give correction uh, has a lot of pride, and they need to be corrected themselves. But this correction, this, this relationship of helping one another and correcting one another, this should be the atmosphere, this should be the culture of a church, shouldn't it? Isn't that what we're here to do? To help one another along the way? To point each other to Jesus? And I'll tell you, I can be honest and confess, I don't look to Jesus by nature every morning. I need correction. I need my course to be altered throughout the day, throughout the weeks, throughout the months. I need correction, and so do you. And we need to be ready to give correction. Our passage this morning is all about correction. We see that there are some groups of people that need some correction. And their understanding. We're going to walk through this passage. And I'm, I'm going to try to do this. I'm going to try to walk through the passage rather quickly. And then I would like to spend the last part of the message on a particular issue that I think is brought up here in Acts chapter 18 and 19. A particular issue regarding baptism that I think some of us need to be corrected on. 
So today is, is a little bit of a, this is a correction for some of our thinking in baptism. And even a, a very kind and very gracious or attempting to be very gracious call to correct yourself in your thinking. So Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 24, we see that the focus, the, the lens of the camera that has been focused primarily on Paul and his missionary journeys, it shifts very briefly to another man, another character, and his name is Apollos. Apollos. Paul very briefly steps off the stage And the lens focuses on a man named Apollos. And the text gives very detailed description of who Apollos is. And and when the Bible stops to give you that kind of description, you want to stop and actually pay attention to what, what it's describing. It's describing the man Apollos here. Look at it, verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos. So what do we know so far? He was a Jewish man. Okay, he was a Jewish man. Named Apollos. He was a native of Alexandria. Now that's significant. I said a few weeks ago that Athens was the intellectual and cultural center of the ancient world. And indeed it was. But if it had a rival, it would be Alexandria. Alexandria was the host, the home of the world's largest library. Of the ancient world that had the largest library. It was a center, again, of intellectual and philosophical debate and learning. People from Alexandria prized their learning and their knowledge. This man was a Jew and he was from Alexandria. The implication is here, he was a man of great intellectual ability. He was a learned man. He was a Jew... From Alexandria, a learned man, he came to Ephesus. Now, Paul had just left Ephesus, so, so he comes in in the, in the uh, interval while Paul is gone. He comes to Ephesus. And look at the further description there, verse 24. It says, he was an eloquent man. What does that mean? It means he was very well-spoken. He was able to speak. He was a great orator. Apollos was a great speaker. So he's an intellectual man who's a great speaker, and it says he was competent in the scriptures. He was learned in the scriptures, the Old Testament. He was able to handle the word. This guy is some some guy. He was competent in handling the Bible. And he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. So he had received some level of formal instruction. He had been catechized. He had learned the way of the Lord. So he was a Jew who was an intellectual man. He was, he was very gifted in speaking, reasoning, logic. He was a great orator. He was competent, able to handle the scriptures, and he had been instructed in the way. He had been well taught in the way of the Lord. Look at the description now in verse 25. Being fervent in spirit. Now it could be an idiom, just meaning that he was boiling over. Right? It could mean that the spirit was evident in his life. Or it could just mean that he was very excited and enthusiastic in his oratory. He was very enthusiastic in the message and giving the message of the gospel, the message regarding Jesus. Either way, it's obvious the spirit is at work in this man, working mightily in him. And it says that, the text says that he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. This man is a gift to the early church. What a powerful and dynamic asset to the gospel cause, isn't he? Amazing. Now we do know that his impact on early Christianity, Apollos' impact on early Christianity is great. We're going to see that in 1 Corinthians 
In fact, his impact rivals that of the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul. This is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. He says, some of you say, I'm of Cephas or Peter. Some of you say you're of Paul. Some of you say you're of Apollos. You got, you got these camps, these circles forming around these great figures in the early church. We're, we don't do that today. I only listen to John MacArthur, amen. I'm a John Piper guy. I, I you know, fill in the blank. We're all the same, right? We're doing the same thing still today. But this man was a great asset to the early church. In fact, Apollos is often thought to be the greatest preacher of the first church. Every generation has its George Whitfield, right? Or Charles Spurgeon. The first century had Apollos, a great speaker, intellectual man who was able to reason from the scriptures with competence and ability. But there's a note, there's a note at the end of this description that redirects the focus. Do you see that there? Right there in verse 25 at the end. Though he only knew the baptism of John. This is incredible. If you stop and think about this. Here's what this is saying. Somehow Apollos had been, at some point in his life, had been made aware of John the Baptist's message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Be baptized in preparation for the kingdom of heaven. And he also learned that the one John pointed to was Jesus. And he knew of that death and resurrection of Jesus. He knew that Jesus had come in fulfillment of John's message. And he had believed in Jesus. I believe Apollos is a believer here. He had believed in Jesus, his death and resurrection, and been baptized according to John's requirement. And yet, he is ignorant of the events surrounding the day of Pentecost. He does not know that The Spirit has been poured out upon the church. He doesn't realize that. He only knows John's baptism. Now, this is 20 years later. This is the early early to mid-50s AD. This is 20 years after the events of Pentecost. And he doesn't know what has happened. He's been ignorant. He knew about the death and resurrection of Jesus, but didn't realize that the Spirit had been poured out upon God's people. How is that even possible? Well, that's exactly what you find. So Apollos is going around speaking boldly, speaking powerfully, speaking scripturally, and proclaiming the good news of Jesus out of the scriptures. But one day in his audience... So, so, so get this. This is very interesting. Apollos is ministering. He's been ministering for quite some time. He's been ministering, but he's never interacted with the apostles and their doctrine. He's ignorant of it. He knows, he knows Jesus has come. He knows John's baptism, but he doesn't know what has happened. And so Apollos is going around speaking boldly and accurately concerning Jesus, proclaiming the good news of Jesus. But one day in his audience... One day in his audience, there are these two people. And we've seen these people. Last week we looked at them. Aquila and Priscilla. And these people are friends of the Apostle Paul. They have lived with the Apostle Paul, worked with the Apostle Paul, been engaged with the Apostle Paul in ministry. They, they sit and listen to Apollos. Now I've got to imagine as they're listening to him, they're pretty impressed. And they're pretty encouraged. This guy is powerfully proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, the things concerning Jesus. Maybe they're sitting there as, as they're listening. They're like, yeah, this is good. This is good. Huh, he's not saying anything about the Holy Spirit. He's not saying anything. Well, he's, I'm sure he's going to get to that, right? I mean, you can't, you can't miss that. Huh, you never... Apollos finishes his speaking. They look at each other. He doesn't say anything. About the giving of the Holy Spirit, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. This guy, this guy doesn't understand what's happened. How is that possible? What are they going to do in that moment? He's unintentionally, I don't think Apollos is intentional, but unintentionally he's spoken an error. 
He's not adding anything, anything to the message of the gospel, but he has some undeveloped theology. He has not fleshed things out. He doesn't know about the Spirit. So Priscilla and Aquila, look at what it says there. They take him aside. They take him aside. So they, after he's done speaking, they wait around and they say, hey, can we talk to you? We need to have a conversation. And they take him aside privately is the idea. Take him aside privately and explain to him the way of God more accurately. Now, what is Apollos going to do with this? What is Apollos? How is Apollos going to respond? They're correcting him. Here's a gifted individual who has everything, right? Intellect, eloquence, competence, dynamism, spiritual giftedness. He's got everything. He's the conference speaker, the big guy, the big name guy. And who are these little people down here, these tent makers? Who are these little people that, you know, aren't they privileged to have me come and speak to them so they can all understand, right? No, that's not his attitude. I I think this is amazing. He listens to them. What humility that is. What humility. He's greatly helped by them. Not only do we see the humility of Apollos, we see the boldness of Aquila and Priscilla, their discernment. They listen carefully, and they are ready to help. They are ready to correct. What would you have done? Some wouldn't say anything. I mean, after all, here's the basics of the gospel, right? After all, I mean, he's got the basics, right? That's all that matters, some would say. So these other things, we're just going to bypass. I mean, he's really gifted. Others might torch him publicly, right, for his, his error. But that's not how Priscilla and Aquila handle it. They take him aside privately. They're gracious, bold, bold enough to say what needs to be said. And here you have a woman. I I want to point this out very briefly. Here you have a woman, Priscilla, involved in correcting a teacher. No, 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 no. We are complementarian. We are complementarian, by the way, unapologetically complementarian. Complementarity, we believe that God has designed man and woman with different roles, and we are unapologetic in that. We believe this is God's design. But here you have Priscilla, right? Again, we want to affirm what 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Timothy 2 say about women teaching with any authority in the church. What these passages teach about roles in the home and in the church for both men and women. We're committed to complementarity, but, but we do not take complementarity to mean that women aren't theologically astute or theologically engaged either in their house or in the church. We want all of you to know your theology. That's how we're going to be a strong church. That's how homes are going to be strong. This is how we're going to be a church that protects the gospel. Every member of the church is responsible for what they hear and what they listen to. So, so let me just stop here and ask this question. Are you a passive recipient of everything you hear, right? Are you just, you're just taking it in, drinking it in? Hey, they mentioned God and they mentioned the Bible and they talked about Jesus. It must be good. Just passively taking it in, drinking it. Tastes good. Are you a passive recipient? Or are you an active recipient? Are you the kind of person that when you hear something, you hold it up against scripture, hold it up against the truth and say, is this accurate? Is this true? And be willing to hold accountable when you hear things that are not true. Now, if we are going to be a church that raises up men to preach and send them out to teach, 
You and I have a role in that. You and I all have a role in that. As we listen to the word being brought, as we hear teaching, we have a role as God's people to hear and listen and help. We don't want to just always be encouraging. What I mean, what if Priscilla and Aquila did that? Hey, Apollos, that was really great. That was really good. Man, I'm so thankful for you. So good. Keep going. No, that wouldn't have been, that would have been helpful. Maybe it would have been really encouraging to Apollos. I mean, I think those were friends of the Apostle Paul, right? He didn't even know the Apostle Paul. What am I talking about? Here, listen. They had a role in shaping him and helping him. And look at the effect. Look at the effect. Apollos is then shortly after sent off to Corinth. This is where Paul ministered. Paul, he says later on in Corinthians, he says, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So Apollos goes to Corinth where Paul had planted the church, and he goes and he has a great benefit to that church. But why? Why is he a great benefit to that church? This is a great, this is a, is, is a extension of Aquila's and Priscilla's ministry to him. He has made a more impactful teacher. He has an impact there in Corinth, speaking powerfully, refuting the Jews publicly, and showing that God's anointed one, God's Messiah, is Jesus, in fact. So here you have Apollos back in Corinth, or Apollos going to Corinth, and Paul then comes back on the scene here at the beginning of Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, Paul comes back onto the scene, and he's going to begin now, here in Acts chapter 19, he's going to begin his most significant ministry. This is his third missionary journey, and most of it takes place in the city of Ephesus. He's going to be there, we find out in Acts chapter 20, he's going to be there three years. So this is seen as the culmination, the apex, the pinnacle of Paul's ministry. We've seen him on the first missionary journey, the second missionary journey. He's been chased off everywhere he goes. He was in Corinth a little bit longer, and now he comes to Ephesus. He's going to be there for three years, ministering and building that church there. When Paul arrives, when Paul arrives, he meets 12 men, 12 disciples. However, Paul senses at least it seems he senses something is not right. Look at it there. He found some disciples, verse 1. And verse 2, it says, And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Something he, he senses about the way they're talking or something that they're saying or, or something that they're doing. He's like, ah, something's not right here. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. So now Paul takes a step back. What? Hold, hold, hold on. Into what then were you baptized? Into John's baptism. And here is the corrective. Paul is ready to correct. Now this correction is a little bit different. The first correction we see this need to correct and this need to help inside the church. People that are believers. Here we see Paul correcting people that think they're believers, they think they're in right relationship with God, they don't have all the information they need. And Paul's going to correct them. He's actually going to bring them to a place of true conversion. We see here the danger of false conversion and the need to correct those who have the gospel wrong. That's not a light thing. We need discernment with those who think they are following the Lord, but are not. Maybe you say, well, that's not any of my business. Is that your attitude? Well, that's not any of my business. Their, their relationship with the Lord is their relationship with the Lord. That's not any of my, that's none of my business. Yes, it is. Anybody who has the gospel, it is their business to make sure people understand the gospel. Someone in your life 
who has some connection to Christianity, but they don't really understand the gospel. You know, God's going to understand that. God's going to look over that. No, there's only one way. Through Jesus, that's it. Well-intentioned people, sincere people, aren't going to heaven because they're sincere. Only through Jesus, his death, his resurrection, by repentance and faith in him. That is the only way to salvation. And it is our business. Are we bold enough to speak into the life of people who don't understand the gospel? So here you see these disciples of John. Paul is able to tell them, and this is what he says. Look at it there. In verse number 4, chapter 19, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance. It was a good baptism, but it wasn't the point. He says this, this baptism of repentance was meant to tell the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. He says the whole point of John's baptism was to point to the one coming after him who was Jesus. It's good to hear and respond to John's message, but that baptism was never meant to be the point. In fact, it was meant to point to Jesus, who is the point, the one who John says would baptize with the Holy Spirit. On hearing this, what happens? They were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. So they receive that baptism, that water baptism signifies their belief in the message concerning Jesus. That water baptism communicates that they have repented of their sin and believed on Jesus and they are being baptized into his name, into identifying with Jesus. So then it says that Paul lays his hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit which is demonstrated through the speaking of tongues and prophesying. Now, I want you to think about this. Here we are, once again, 20 years after the events of Jesus' death and resurrection. These men had heard John's message somehow, had been baptized into John's baptism, but they had never heard about the one John intended to point to. They had never heard about the Holy Spirit. They were still living in the Old Testament. Here they are, 20 minutes after the New Covenant era has begun, and they're still living in the Old Testament. They're like in a time warp. It's a really weird, weird, unique occasion. And I think here in Acts 19, we have the story coming full circle, right? John the Baptist was the one who got the ball rolling. He's the one that came crying out saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's one coming who's greater than I. There's one coming who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. He got the ball rolling. And now you have Paul. Paul who has taken the gospel to the nations. Now he meets up with some of the remnants of John's baptism. And the the circle is complete. It's coming full circle. I think it's a way of showing that this mission that started with the proclamation of John the Baptist culminated in Jesus. And then Jesus sent out his disciples to the ends of the earth. This has come full circle. Acts 19 is the culmination the pinnacle, rather, of Paul's ministry. So, first we have Apollos corrected. And now we have some disciples of John the Baptist corrected. Both of them understood John's baptism to a degree, but didn't understand the whole truth. Apollos was a believer in Jesus as the Christ, but he was not aware of Pentecost or the baptism, the pouring out of the Spirit. And John's disciples hadn't even heard about Jesus. They believed there was a king coming, but they didn't know Jesus or who he was, and they had not even heard of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want, very, very quickly, I want you to look at the very end of Acts, this passage, Acts 19. Paul takes these disciples that he has just brought to faith in Christ, and he enters the synagogue. That's what he does, right? He goes into the synagogue, and for three months, he spoke boldly. Three months, he speaks boldly, reasoning and persuading them about what? 
about the kingdom of God. That's what he's there to do. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief. So here, here is a Jewish audience, primarily a Jewish audience, listening and hearing for three months the good news of the kingdom of God, the good news of Jesus who's come to establish and mediate God's kingdom in his death and resurrection. He's forming a new people for God. They hear this news and instead of receiving the news, they become hardened. They become stubborn. Here we see demonstrated once again that belief is not a, belief is not a sight issue or an opportunity issue. Belief is a moral issue. Belief is a moral problem. They had access to the truth. They were hearing the good news. And yet they refused to believe. They were hardened. They become stubborn and continued in unbelief. That was their decision. That was their response. As will be the response of many. And their continued unbelief results in them speaking evil of the way before the congregation. And look at what Paul does. Look what Paul does. He just keeps on talking to them, right? He just keeps on preaching the gospel to them. No, no. What does he do? Very similar to what he did in Corinth. Remember in Corinth, he shook off his garments. He says, your blood be on your own head. I'm innocent. I've given you the good news. I'm not going to waste any more time with you. That's a hard decision, isn't it? That takes some discernment. He moves on. That's what it says. He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Now, Tyrannus was a lecture hall. He was there in the lecture hall. Now, what, what would happen is in the ancient world, people would stop working in the middle of the day often. It was too hot. And so in the middle of the day, sometimes they would go and enjoy a lecture or they would enjoy some kind of uh, intellectual stimulation. And Tyrannus was a lecture hall where people would come and listen to things, listen to people lecture on certain philosophical or intellectual things. And Paul lectured in that hall, look at it, for two years. For two years he lectured. So that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, you have to remember this. We, when we, a few, few weeks ago, remember he wanted to go to Asia? And the Lord said, no, don't go to Asia, go to Macedonia. And he obeyed. He went to Macedonia. But what's going to happen to Asia? Well, the Lord has his timing. The Lord has his plan. And here now Paul is back at Ephesus and he lectures for two years. And the word of the Lord goes to all of Asia. Trusting in the sovereignty of God. The, the gospel's going to go. The gospel's going to go forth. And there's great blessing here for two years. Paul is at the apex of his ministry. And he's able to lecture there with those disciples. Imagine, they, they, they met him and they didn't even know about Jesus. They didn't even know about the Holy Spirit. And now for two years they get to sit under the teaching of the Apostle Paul. And it sounds like they took that teaching and go out to all of Asia, along with others, I'm sure. So we need discernment. We need to be willing to correct inside the church. We need to be able to correct and be willing to correct those who are not believers, who are unconverted, don't have the gospel right. And we need to be willing to shake off our garments when people continue to be stubborn and continue in their unbelief, we don't, we don't like to do any of those things, do we? But here we see examples. I, I, lo- I love that last one. Paul, Paul's not going to spend, he's not going to waste any more time. He's got gospel work to do. And we're not going to spend our time on people who obviously don't want to listen. I, I want to just give a, a brief I told you I was out yesterday. I went to two delis yesterday. Two delis, different reasons. The first deli I went to, I'm sitting there checking out, and the woman asks me, she asks me if the shirt I was wearing, does that have to do with the Lord? Yes, it does. 
It was a student ministry shirt from a church I pastored at in North Carolina. I was like, yeah, I was, I was a pastor in North Carolina. What church do you pastor at now? I got to talk to her about the church, and I got to talk to her about why we came out to the valley. She's like, we've been looking for a church, my, me and my kids. We, we can't find anything that, you know, preaches the word and, and, and really is a close community, and we can't, we can't find that. An opportunity! So, do you think I'm going to go back to that deli? Yes, I'm going to go back to that deli. Have another conversation with her, maybe another conversation with her. So that, they're everywhere, people. I, I say sometimes when people say, well, I just don't know. Nobody wants to hear that. That's not true. There are a lot of people that have a lot of questions all around us all the time. Sometimes we're so focused on what we're doing that we don't see it. Now, as I was studying this passage, my original intent was to just go through all of Ephesus, to just treat the city in one sermon, to talk about Ephesus and the ministry of Ephesus. We're going to finish Ephesus next week. We're going to talk about magic and money and mobs next week. Come back for that. But as I was thinking about what happens here in Acts 18 and Acts 19... Stuck out to me that at center to this passage is this misunderstanding around baptism. That's what's going on. These two groups, Apollos and these disciples, they know John's baptism, but they don't know about the spirit baptizing and they don't know about water baptism in the name of Jesus. So I, I thought this is an opportunity for us to do potentially some correction. And so I've got 15 minutes and I want to walk through as quick as I can. Don't hold me. Don't get out your time. Okay. I want, I want to go through this as quickly as I can. And I want, I want to offer some correction, maybe some new thinking, maybe some corrective in our thinking. And even, and you say, well, are you thinking of me? There are some of you who profess to be believers in Christ and are not yet baptized. So yes, I'm thinking of you. This is why a pastor gets to do what he, right? Because I actually am thinking about particular people in this case who profess to be believers in Jesus, but you have not been baptized. That needs to be rectified. That needs to be changed. That's not a small issue. But generally speaking, also, I think there's some misunderstanding about water baptism and its connection to spirit baptism. Would you be able to explain baptism if someone asked you? Now, there are three baptisms, okay? Let's go through this real quick. There are three baptisms that you as a Christian need to be aware of, that you need to have some understanding of, and they're all connected Okay, they're all connected. The first one is John's baptism. John's baptism, very quickly, was a Jewish baptism. John's baptism was a Jewish baptism. It is not a Christian baptism. And yet it serves as a precursor to Christian water baptism. John the Baptist was not the first person to baptize anybody. Baptism or passing someone through water was a first century purity ritual. Some sects of Jewish people did this as an initiatory rite into their sect, into their belief system. So John didn't invent baptism, but he is known as the Baptist because he's out in the wilderness calling people to repent, calling Jewish people to repent in anticipation of the coming kingdom. It was for Jewish people. It was an immersion. So going all the way into the water, it was an immersion signifying preparation. To communicate repentance and a washing away of sin in preparation for the coming king. Okay, Israel was sinful, unworthy of her king. And so John calls them to wash away their sins, to repent and wash away their sins in the waters of baptism in anticipation of the coming king. His message was one of warning and rebuke and calling to repent and be baptized. So it was an anticipatory baptism. Therefore, in a real way, this anticipatory baptism served to differentiate between God's people, the Jewish people. There were some who were faithful to the promises of the coming Messiah, and they signified that faithfulness, that belief by being baptized with John's baptism. 
So, so here you see a distinction between even groups of Jewish people. John's baptism was how a faithful Jew showed that they indeed were trusting in the promises of the coming kingdom and the coming king. A repentance and washing away of their sin, anticipating the coming king. So that's John's baptism. It's an Old Testament baptism. Now John said that when the one to whom he was pointing would come, he, whoever this one was, he would baptize his people with the Holy Spirit. So that's the second baptism you need to be aware of. The baptism of the Spirit. The baptism of the Spirit. In Acts 1, 5, Acts chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus reiterates this promise. Listen to Acts 1, 5. He says, while staying with them, he ordered them, the disciples, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus calls it a baptism of the Spirit. This baptism of the Spirit, this giving of the Spirit, this pouring out of the Spirit, all synonymous terms, okay? This pouring out of the Spirit was the promise of the new covenant given by God. God said that he would give his Spirit to his people. And that is what he does in Acts chapter 2. The Spirit of God is poured out upon the followers of Jesus. The 120. Do you remember what they do? When the Spirit is poured out on them, they speak in tongues. They speak in tongues, demonstrating that the Spirit had indeed been poured out. The, the, the promised Spirit of God had been poured out on them is demonstrated by the speaking in tongues. Then Peter preaches the first sermon of the New Covenant era. Acts chapter 2. And the Jewish audience responds with this, with a question. Remember? Do you remember this? If we've been here for the last few months, what do they respond with? They respond with a question. What shall we do? What shall we do? Everything you said is true, Peter. We're in trouble. What do we do? He says, repent. Repent and be baptized. That is water baptism. Repent and be water baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness, for the remission of your sins. And, then he says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, Peter introduces, just as Jesus commanded him to in Matthew 28... uh, Peter introduces what Jesus commanded him to. He introduces a new water baptism into the name of Jesus. And this new water baptism is connected to the giving of the Spirit or the baptism of the Spirit. So baptism of the Spirit or the giving of the Spirit and water baptism are not the same But they are closely connected. Four times in the book of Acts. We've talked about this before. Four times in the book of Acts, you have a demonstrable pouring out of the Spirit. In other words, it was seen. Four times in the book of Acts, the the pouring out of the Spirit is seen. The baptism of the Spirit is seen. Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, and here in Acts 19. Which is why I'm stopping to talk about it. These four occasions are unique because the gospel message is being received by a new group of people. In Acts 2, the Spirit is poured out on the Jewish disciples of Jesus, which is demonstrated through the speaking of tongues. Peter preaches his sermon and commands the listeners to repent and be baptized for the remission of sins and then promises that they too will receive the Spirit. Now, important to note, listen, important to note, The people who receive the message that day, on the day of Pentecost, they are baptized into the name of Jesus, water baptism. 3,000 people are added to the church through water baptism that day. But, did you notice, they receive the Spirit, as was promised, but nothing is said or alluded to about them speaking in tongues. Nothing. 
So a lot of times people say, yeah, they believed and they spoke in tongues. No, 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 no. The, the disciples spoke in tongues, showing that God had poured out, poured out his spirit upon the Jewish people. The 3,000 don't speak in tongues. They're baptized by water. In Acts chapter 8, Philip preaches the gospel to the Samaritans. And they believe the good news regarding the kingdom and the king. And subsequently are baptized in water. That's what it says. Acts chapter 8. We looked at it. This is the first non-Jewish audience to receive the message. Remember, they were considered half-breeds, not purely Jewish. So this is the first non-Jewish audience to receive the message. Peter and the apostle John travel up to Samaria to see what's happened. They lay hands on these new believers and the spirit is poured out on them. Now that passage is used by a lot of people to say, see, the baptism of the spirit comes after conversion. No, this is a very unique situation. The apostles have to vindicate, have to validate what's happened up in Samaria. So they were baptized in Samaria first and then were baptized in the spirit. They were given the spirit after a delay. In Acts chapter 10, the order reverses. Do you remember that? This is where Peter goes into Cornelius' house. Cornelius has gathered all his friends and family. And Peter comes in and he's beginning to speak the gospel. And as he's speaking... He hasn't even finished his message yet. As he's speaking, they're so ready to believe the gospel that the Spirit pours out upon them. The Spirit is poured out upon them, and they do what? They speak in tongues. Peter immediately realizes the significance of this. And he says this. This is what he says. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? Since they have received the Spirit just as we have. Again, the connection. They've received the Spirit, signifying that they are indeed God's people. His Spirit has been given to them. So who's going to withhold water baptism from them? Who are we to withhold water baptism? They've received the Spirit just as we have. We should baptize them in water. That's what they do. They baptize them, signifying that they have been converted. Now, in Acts chapter 19, we have another event that focuses on the water baptism, the giving of the Spirit. So, four times, so we just looked at that, right? These disciples of John hear the gospel, they believe, they are baptized in water. It's the first thing they do. And then Paul prays and he lays his hand on them and the Spirit is poured out. Again, I just said, this is, this is the, the whole story coming full circle with John's disciples. So four times in Acts, the Spirit is poured out on a group of people in a demonstrable way, in, in evidenced in speaking in tongues, more than likely, and they are baptized in water in the name of Jesus. Now, what about the other conversions in the book of Acts? Do you remember all the other conversions we've seen? The Ethiopian eunuch was immediately baptized in water upon hearing and believing the good news. Did he receive the Spirit? Saul, the persecutor, is converted and is immediately baptized. Paul himself... We see his conversion. And he's immediately baptized at the house of Ananias. Did he receive the Spirit? Lydia and the Philippian jailer and Crispus and many of the Corinthians, they hear and believe and are what? Baptized in water. Did they receive the Spirit? The text doesn't say they received the Spirit. What happened? Well, they indeed receive the Spirit. How do we know that? Well, we look at 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13. Listen, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13. This is the Apostle Paul writing. He says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink. Of one spirit. So there's that imagery again of water and drinking and pouring. All believers have been given the spirit. All those who are in Christ have been baptized in the spirit. You have been given the spirit. It occurs at the time of salvation. And in every case, other than those four unique instances you see in Acts, it is not accompanied by outward demonstration. These four instances and acts are indeed unique. So this sharing of the spirit 
that all believers enjoy is the new mark of God's people. In other words, this is what I'm saying. How do you know who God's people are? You know who God's people are because they have the spirit. We sang about that in our songs earlier. He is the seal. He is the mark. He is the guarantee of our inheritance. He is the assurance of our faith. The spirit has been given to us. He has marked us as God's people. That's how we know we are God's people. Now the baptism in the spirit, hang with me here. The baptism in the spirit or the giving of the spirit to the believer is one of several events that take place at salvation. And in every, listen, it's not, it's not an event that happens after salvation, right? It happens at salvation, not after salvation. And it's one of several events that take place at the moment of salvation, do you know all of the do you know all of the events that happen at salvation? Do you know all of the events that happen at salvation? What happens when someone is saved? Well, they are converted. How is conversion carried out? Through repentance and faith. Right? They are converted. At salvation, a person is regenerated. They are given the new birth. They are born again. This is what Titus 3.5 says, that we are regenerated and renewed by the Holy Spirit. The washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So we are converted. We are regenerated. The Spirit is giving to, given to us. The Spirit baptism happens at salvation. This, this is like, what would happen if we were able to zoom in on the moment of salvation? There are several events that take place at the moment of salvation. When we zoom out, it all looks like one event. But you zoom in and there, there's several different things. So conversion, repentance and faith, regeneration, the new birth, the giving of the Spirit, that is the Spirit baptizing or being given to the believer. Union with Christ happens at the moment of salvation. Listen, union with Christ happens at the moment of salvation. We are joined to the life of Jesus. Justification. The declaration of righteous. The sinner is declared righteous at the moment of salvation. Because they have been joined to Jesus. His life is our life. His death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. Adoption happens at salvation. You are adopted. You are made God's child at the moment of salvation. And all these events happen at salvation. At what point are you saved in all those events? Which one of those events explains all of salvation? None of them. They're all salvation. This is what happens when someone is saved. So, let me use marriage as an analogy. Can I use marriage as an analogy? When someone gets married, what do they do? They, they get engaged. And then they go down and get a marriage license. And then they... they contract a venue and they go and they stand before a group of people and there's some kind of licensed officiant and they make promises and oaths and they, they swear to obligations like a great peril to themselves if they don't keep those obligations and the officiant right helps them exchange rings they exchange rings and then the officiant says, I now pronounce you man and wife. And then they kiss. And then they go to a reception that they don't want to be at. And then it's like, wait, waste of time. Let's get out of here. So you go to this reception you don't want to be at. And then you go on your honeymoon where the marriage is consummated. So at what point is someone married in that? At what point are they married? Is it when they get the license? Is it when the officiant says, I pronounce you man and wife? Is it when they exchange rings? Is it when they make their vows? Is it when they make their oaths and obligations? Is it the night when they consummate that marriage? When is it that they get married? You would say, all of it. These are all different important parts of it. And all these events are seen as one action. Not several different actions. One, this is our salvation. Now, it's not a perfect analogy, but what if someone told you that they were married 
And you asked, oh, when did you get married? Oh, we didn't have a ceremony. Oh, okay. All right. Well, did you go to the justice of the peace? Oh, no, no, we didn't do that either. Well, who officiated then? Oh, we didn't have an officiant. What do you mean you didn't have an officiant? You didn't have a license? You didn't have a justice of the peace? You didn't have a ceremony? Oh, no, we don't believe in any of that. We privately committed to each other. We privately committed to each other. I mean, that's all that matters, right? Sincerity, commitment. We privately committed to each other. We're married. What would you say to that person? Right? What if they were, what if they were 16 year old? Has a 16 year old ever done that, right? I don't need my parents' permission. I love you. We're married, you know? That, that's, how people, that's how people think. What would you say to that person? You'd say, why? Well, I, I appreciate your sincerity, but you are not indeed married. You're not married. Sincerity aside, you're not married. Now, it's, a po- it's possible to be married without a public ceremony, right? It's possible to be married without rings. Ring is a visible public sign of my commitment to Christy, my wife. It's visible. But it's possible to be married without a wedding ring. But you're, but you're not just married because you say you are. But that's exactly how we treat this relationship with Jesus, isn't it? That's exactly how we treat it. Oh, that relationship I have with Jesus is personal. I don't need to answer your doctrinal questions. I don't, I don't care about all that doctrinal stuff. I know that I'm in Jesus and Jesus is mine. I'm his and he is mine. I know that. So it doesn't really matter to me. All of your little loops and hoops to jump through. This attitude is not how it's supposed to be. And it's extremely perilous for your spiritual life and salvation. I mean, what did you believe? Well, that's not important. Yes, it is important. It's everything. Do you understand the gospel? Oh, I don't need, the, I don't need all that doctrinal stuff, right? That's how people act. Now, water baptism, water baptism was seen by the first century Christians. Water baptism is seen as the public ceremony, the visible sign of the salvation event. That's what baptism is. Paul, in his epistles, assumes the water baptism of his audience. He sees it as synonymous with salvation. Now, as soon as I say that, people are going to go, no, you don't have to be baptized in order to be saved. Right. We're not Roman Catholic. Okay. Roman Catholics believe that baptism water actually conveys grace to the participant. We don't believe that. But in our, in our zealousness, which is a right instinct, right? We don't want to be Roman Catholic. But in our zealousness to separate ourselves from works righteousness... We have gone so far, as soon as somebody says, oh, you don't need to be water baptized in order to be saved, you go, oh, then it's not that important. Oh, no, it's, it's pretty important. Th- this is actually how you communicate your salvation. And without it, just to be very blunt, without it, when somebody says to me they follow Jesus, but they're not baptized, I have the same reaction as somebody who says they're married, but there's been no actual ceremony or license or any kind of vows or any kind of light, you know, officiant. I just go, uh, that, that's, that's not salvation. And your personal feelings, I, I love you and I... I, I, I want to respect your feelings, but your personal feelings aren't, aren't what makes you saved. And it's the job of the church, it's the job of Christians to protect the gospel. I have a lot more to do and I'm not going to have time. Just very quickly, here's what water baptism signals. Very quickly, six things. This is not new with me. This is actually in the book by Bobby Jameson called Going Public why water baptism is important for membership of a church. Water baptism signals a public profession of faith and repentance. This is how you communicate your faith and repentance. This is how you communicate your conversion. Water baptism is a sign of forgiveness and cleansing. Water baptism is a sign of union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's what it, that's what it signals. 
I've been joined with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Read Romans 6 or Galatians 3 or Colossians 2. It is a sign of new life in Christ. It is a sign of the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, that's it. The giving of the Holy Spirit and all these events of salvation, justification and adoption and conversion and all of these events, regeneration, they're not visible. Now you can see fruits of them as we live. We can see fruits, the fruits of the Spirit and fruits of repentance and the fruits of regeneration. We can see fruits, but they're not visible. Water baptism is where we make all of these spiritual realities visible. It's a sign of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it is a sign of the dawning of a new creation in Christ. Water baptism is central. The Augsburg Confession, 1530, so right in the first days of the, of the Reformation. You know how they defined a true church? And this is how I define a true church, by the way. I believe it's a good definition. A true church is a church that preaches the gospel rightly. They, they tell the truth about who God is. God is a creator, man is sinner, man is, man is under the wrath of God for their sin. God has put forth Jesus as a propitiation for that sin to satisfy the wrath of God. And you must repent and believe upon Jesus. He's the only way of salvation. A church who rightly preaches the gospel, that's the first requirement. And then the church must rightly practice the ordinances. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's what a true church is. So, if you have not been baptized to publicly profess your faith in Christ and repentance from sin, you need to be baptized. This is not a a non-essential thing. It's not not a negotiable thing. It's a non-negotiable thing. You need to be baptized. If you have been baptized in the name of Jesus, you need to cherish your baptism. That's what Paul in the, in the epistles does. He wants them to understand what their baptism signifies. Treasure that. Cherish that. Understand that. And then see your role as a church member. See your role in protecting the purity of the message of the gospel. See your role. Be discerning. Be willing to correct. Be willing to hold accountable. Love the gospel and its message and its purity. Don't compromise on it. 